So over the last couple of days, we've been exploring the second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of feeling tone or Vedana. And this aspect of experience is a kind of a bridge between the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the body, and the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the mind. Because Vedana or feeling tone, it's not a purely physical experience, but neither is it purely mental, either it has aspects of both. And as I've been emphasizing, it plays a very significant role in influencing most, if not all, of our mental activity, which in turn affects how we speak and act in the world. So as it says in the Dhammapada, with our thoughts we make the world. So this morning then I wanted to explore the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind in a bit more detail. And here in this foundation we're invited to open up the field of our awareness to look very directly at our mental activity, to, to pay attention to our thoughts, our emotions, our moods and our mind states. And again, as with the first two foundations of mindfulness, the instructions are to simply know what's present in our experience without assessing it, judging it, analyzing it or struggling with it. So I'll read you the first few lines of the passage from the Satipatthana Sutta in relation to mindfulness of the mind. Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. And it goes on to name a few other mind states, but you might have recognized in those first three the so-called root poisons that I spoke about last night of greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or delusion. So at this stage in the practice, we're simply noticing if any of these unwholesome energies are present or not. And it's important to notice the or not part. Again, because of the mind's negativity bias, we tend to pay much more attention to whether there is greed or anger or hatred in the mind and to not even recognize those many moments when the mind is actually free of these energies. So as you uh, continue to explore those questions that I gave the other day, what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart-mind and how am I relating to this experience, at those times when you pay attention and realize that the heart-mind is actually free of compulsion and aversion and delusion, and that it's not contracted or distracted, see if you can really acknowledge that, let it in and appreciate it, so that you can start to become familiar with how the body, heart and mind feel when these harmful energies have gone even if it's only temporarily. 
So the first stage in working with mindfulness of the mind is to simply know what's happening there without reactivity. Again, this quality of bare awareness. And it's very different from the usual way we relate to our minds, either dismissing our thoughts or believing them completely, identifying with them and taking them to define who we are. So many of us have these quite contradictory attitudes to our thoughts. One common tendency is to believe that what we think doesn't matter because it's it's just a thought. It's just a thought. So, for example, we might spend a lot of our mental energy seething with frustration and resentment about a a workmate, a colleague, and think, well, it's okay because I didn't say or do anything. But in the Buddha's teachings, this is actually not a skillful situation because the mind does have an effect not only on we ourselves, but on those around us. And the more we're cultivating those kind of unwholesome states, the higher the chances that at some point we will actually speak or act from them. So because everything we do or say starts with an intention in the mind, we really need to be paying attention to the quality of the mind so that those intentions have a better chance of being helpful rather than harmful. So the other day I quoted the opening lines of the Dhammapada in relation to this. So just as a reminder, uh, some of the key lines from that, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So it's an act of self-protection then, as well as protection for others, to really take care of our hearts and minds and to pay close attention to what's going on there, so that we can make sure we don't feed the unskillful thoughts and we do feed the skillful thoughts. So that's one tendency is to just dismiss our thoughts as, well, doesn't matter, it's just a thought. The other common tendency is to really believe that our thoughts are, are we take them far too seriously, to believe everything that we think and to believe that we are our thoughts. And I think most of us have had that experience, perhaps even on this retreat, of being in a state of some degree of ease or okayness or maybe even happiness. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a random unpleasant thought just pops into the mind and our whole world shifts. We get caught in all kinds of painful, unpleasant emotions sometimes for hours because of one firing of neurons in the brain. And we know for ourselves what can happen when we don't pay attention to the mind and just run with whatever happens to flit through it. The good news, though, is that challenging thoughts and mind states are a normal and expected part of the practice. It's not that there's something wrong with us if these happen to us. And it's also not that we have to slug our way through them for decades before we can expect any benefit from the practice. We can actually use these challenging aspects of the mind as fuel for the practice. Remembering that slogan I quoted the other day, if it's in the way, it is the way. 
So everything that comes up, including our mental states, if they seem like obstacles, that's a good opportunity to turn and see how can this become something that actually strengthens my practice. So this is how Joseph Goldstein describes it. He says, What is reassuring about all of these instructions is that they fully acknowledge the difficulties that arise in practice. It's not that somehow we need to be free of all the hindrances and defilements in order to proceed. Here, the Buddha is saying that mindfulness of all these states, when they arise, is itself the path to freedom. Through bare attention and mirror-like wisdom, we see their ephemeral, impermanent and selfless nature. That itself is sufficient for liberation. So that might sound good in theory, but because our thoughts often are so seductive and they do seem so real and they do so often feel to define who we are, it takes quite a bit of training to learn how to work skillfully with them. And again, this first step is just to notice whatever's happening exactly as it is without reactivity then we can start to see that thoughts are just thoughts. And in and of themselves, they don't have any power. They only have as much power as we give to them. So the more solid we make them, the more weight we give them, the more seriously we take them, to that extent they cause stress and distress. And the opposite is true also. The more we can relate to them as just thoughts, the more freedom we have to choose which ones we respond to, and which ones we simply let go of. And again, that can sound simple, but in practice, often hard to do because our thoughts are so fleeting and are so seductive. So usually we need to practice working with them in meditation to let them just come and go without either suppressing them or denying them. And the first thing to remember is that thoughts are not the enemy. We're not trying to get rid of thoughts because thinking is what the mind does most of the time. In some ways, it's a sense organ. So in the same way that the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind thinks. It's just natural. But even very experienced meditators can have an unconscious belief that real Meditation happens when there are no thoughts in the mind whatsoever. And it is true that uh, sometimes in the deeper states of concentration known as the jhanas, that uh, this can be a byproduct of concentration. But in vipassana or insight practice, the reducing of mental activity is a byproduct of the practice. It's not the main goal, which for most of us is probably good news. Because for most of us, there'll be some kind of mental activity going on to some extent most of the time. So we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts. What we are trying to do is change our relationship them to them to simply allow them to come and go. Finding that middle way between suppression and indulgence. And the instructions here in the Mindfulness of the Mind section encourage us to start with the simplest aspects of our mental activity and then slowly progress to what becomes more complicated. 
So we start by knowing thoughts as just thoughts, and then we can start to notice how some of them also have an emotional component. So this is another aspect of the thoughts that can make them quite tricky to deal with, that they often uh, come with some kind of emotion or mood or mind state. And again, these can be very seductive and suck us into believing them. I am bored, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm depressed, and so on. But again, it's possible to know even these states of mindfulness, to see them as just like weather systems that are passing through the sky of the mind. Just like in this retreat over the last few days, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's misty, sometimes it's windy, sometimes it's cloudy or rainy and then fine again. And in the same way, we can simply notice, oh, restlessness, Frustration, self-judgment, self-compassion, ease, openness, calm, happiness, and so on. So we can also notice with that third question, how am I relating to this experience? And to check if any of the hindrances are present, and then if they are, to perhaps add a fourth question, what would a wise response be? And this is a skillful way of exploring mindfulness of the mind. So what would a wise response be? And then we might start to see, oh, it's time to apply an antidote of some kind, or it's time to uh, go out and do some walking if the mind is feeling very tight and contracted. So in all of this, we're trying to maintain some degree of balance in relation to our mental activity. So in this next meditation session, I'd like to experiment with uh, beginning to include thoughts more directly in our mindfulness, starting with the anchors that we've already been using, the breath and physical sensations and sounds, and then opening up to thoughts. And it's quite common as we do this that uh, some people feel that the thoughts just seem to disappear when we're actually invited to bring awareness to them. Then suddenly they're gone. Other people find the opposite, that it creates a whole pile of of extra thinking, maybe some agitation. But whatever happens is fine. It doesn't have to be any particular way. So just to notice the mental activity And as best you can, keep releasing any reactivity to it. So that's the general instructions for this next session. Okay, thank you.